Greetings and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS. Beatles stuff on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Finally, we reached the title track of the album. Are you ready to get stuck into it? Sure. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's the title track is, is, is quite significant. I think it says a lot about how they felt about this as a song. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, do you think it deserves its status as the title track in the album? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, we, what we could do is get into some sort of uh, uh, hyper-pretentious uh, debate about the, the lyrics and, and their, their deep meaning. I don't think there's a massive deep meaning, and I'm not really bothered if, if anyone does. I just think it's a whole thing about fun. You know, I think there's that sense of let's have fun, and that that's what this song does. It's a fun song. Not brilliant, but it's a fun song. Yeah, it's got a lot of energy to it. I think the only other song on the album which would be um, comparable uh, in terms of its fun, in terms of its energy, and in terms of it being a sort of potential title track for the album is Likely I Saw Standing There, uh, which is an unwieldy title for an album at the best of times. So I can understand the logic of going for something which maybe has a little bit more more of a catchy uh, sound to it. In fact, I think I'll go as far as to say, and this is going to be my only comment on some of the opinions about that people have about the meaning of the song. I'd go as far to say it's got some spunk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nicely alluded to there. Thank you. That's a top, top illusional work there. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's not much to the lyric at the best of time. If people want to take it as innuendo, um, then, then, then sure, that's that's fine but it's not it's not lyrically complex i think it would be fair to say well i mean it's it's a a, principally it's a lennon song isn't it i mean but we are recording this in i think in the week that mccartney's book of lyrics um is being is being published it's certainly being very heavily publicized this week so you know there is that sense that we could talk about all the beatles as lyricists but you know 1962 into 1963 very few people were writing deep and meaningful statements that were were getting into the pop charts you know son you'll be a bachelor boy you know um but not exactly um you know huge on on the metaphor scale so you know take it for what it is bit of fun what the 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 attitude behind it and the ideas behind it and what it represents are vastly more important than, you know, the the slightly weird and dodgy lyrics. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. It's one of the earliest sort of Beatles songs I have any kind of memory of of knowing, um, which is kind of weird because it's not... I mean, in all honesty, it's not really one of my favourites. I don't quite hook into it in the way that I think a lot of people do. I mean, it, obviously, it's an incredibly significant track in terms of um, the progression of the Beatles' own career, in terms of its chart position, in terms of sort of really sort of getting them into the mainstream and getting them overground in, in the UK in particular. Um, I can't honestly say that I, I deeply love it. Um, I've always... It, we sort of mentioned before about, you know, how, how the Beatles are essentially pop culture background radiation, and this song, as much as any, kind of fulfills that... Uh, criteria I think it's it's just a song that it's like even saying it's a standard isn't quite right it's not really a standard in the sense of um, New York New York or or you know I left my heart in San Francisco it's not that kind of standard but it's just everyone knows this damn song it's just it's it's just inexplicably everywhere um, even if you don't seek it out even if it's not something that you would choose to listen to and being sort of aware of it 
sort of, I guess, throughout all of my life. It's just, I don't know. It's it's one of those songs that's just never really quite grabbed me in the way that it, it sort of grabs other people. What I find interesting is that the, there are a few of the singles at the time, like Please Please Me, Love Me Do, uh, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, where parts of them just feel incredibly interchangeable. And and I, you know, there was, before I, I went back um, and listened to the album again, when I was sort of playing through my mind, um, Please Please Me, I started, you know, okay, fair enough, bits of the song would come back and then suddenly my brain would divert into um, Love Me Do. And and it was like, I couldn't, even though they are, you know, they have different rhythms and, and you know, they do feel very different, um, you know, in terms of tempo, they are also quite similar. Because I think what we, we need to remember is that the Beatles at this point hadn't developed massively as songwriters so they are they're mucking about with things but the variations are still quite um quite restricted yeah i think that's a i think that's probably quite a nice way of putting it i mean for me i think one of the issues uh, issues is too strong but one of the things which uh, i think slightly suffers uh, please please me slightly suffers from is that kind of it feels slightly derivative to me it feels more like uh lennon is trying to write in another style which he is you know he's it, it, it's very well known of course it, it's it's derived from only the lonely uh roy orbison it's got that kind of bluesy feel to it um and the, the harmonies are, are are you know just straight everly brothers stuff um and i think that's partly why i don't quite connect with it in the same way it feels like it's just it's it's less the Beatles and more the Beatles doing an impression of, of somebody else. It's a very good impression. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But if you take something like Even Love Me Do, um, which I, I've got to be honest, has gone up in my estimation whilst we've been doing this podcast, not this episode, but the whole thing. Um, but I've kind of come to appreciate it a little bit more. And it feels a little bit more... Um, of their character, let's say, rather than them doing, uh, you know, taking inspiration from from other people. I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking inspiration. I would absolutely not wish to make it sound like that's what I was trying to say. Uh, but it just sounds more. I'm really. I don't want to use the word authentic because that's just patronising nonsense. But yeah, that it, a little bit more kind of 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 their own character rather than them importing someone else's character. Okay, so so walk me through it then, into because you know having heard about the um you know the everly brothers okay so there's harmonies fair enough and having heard about the the roy orbison thing you sort of then think right okay well what do i know about those artists that i can hear in this song and thinking about the roy orbison bit i i, I kind of struggle apart from those little guitar riffs between uh the lines in the song you know last night i said these words to my girl Ding, 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 ding. You know, that to me is, yeah. is a little bit of... And whether that is, I don't know. Um, because let's face it, I probably only know about five or six Roy Orbison songs. You know, there's the Pretty Woman and, you know, I'm, I'm now going to struggle to name a couple of the others from the Times. And then there was, you know, um, maybe chucking a couple of Travelling Wilburys songs and a couple of songs from the album he did with the likes of Elvis Costello and Bono and The Edge. You know, it's just, it's one of those artists that I think people know, but don't really listen to. And probably if you did, you'd find that there's a few perfectly fine songs 
and then an awful lot that's really not very good. You know, possibly similar with the Everly Brothers as well, that they suffer even more from that sort of contextual comparison than, than a band like the Beatles. The Everly Brothers, are, you know, are kind of aware of them, couldn't really name any songs. They sort of passed in time, apart from the fact I, I remember in the very early 80s that one of them did a duet with Cliff Richard. You know, that's that's the kind of impression that, that I had. And at that stage, you know, as a 10, 11 year old, at that point, I was kind of wise enough to know that Cliff Richard was yeah, perhaps a little, just a little bit on the passe side. So, you know, where where are, what are they, they referencing in this? Well, I mean, it's particularly the harmonies. That's that's always the thing, isn't it? On on the come on, come on, uh, and on the chorus, and that's 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 very um, Everly Brother. If if, if you had to, um, like, all I have to do is dream, uh, bye bye love. Uh, those kind of Everly Brothers songs have a bit of it. Um, so I can I can hear those in my head. I can hear them, but what, yeah. what I'm I'm not sure about because I tell you what I really like about the harmonies on this that I'm not off the top of my head aware of the Beatles doing. At other stages, I mean, you, you may well tell me that I'm completely um, off the mark here, but it's it's not that they are singing different harmonies. It's the fact I think it's Paul, isn't it, who's just basically singing a one note melody, and John is the one who's leaping up and around it. So you've got this this sort of static sounding line, and then you've got someone singing somewhere different, you know, and and taking it to different places. That I think's brilliant. I think it's it's so different to other things I've I've heard them do, you know, where they might be sort of harmonising on a similar melody line. You know, Paul just really does seem to be going. Last night I said, that, yeah, it, it's yeah, it's fascinating. It's almost in my mind. I'm, I'm thinking back to you know famous one chord, um, you know, pop songs um, that that have that effect. You know, like the Common People of the World, where, where people do something so goddamn simple that it's revolutionary. That's what it yeah. feels like to me. Well, I think with, you're not wrong, um, but it is, what you've done is you've exactly identified the thing that makes it sound like the Everly Brothers, which is that one high note which is being held by one person while someone sings lower down below. It's exactly that that is the Everly Brothers things, rather than them singing the same melody line in, in, uh, in tandem with each other, but at, on, on different notes. Um, so that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what the, the, the um, Everly Brothers thing is. And apparently, this, the 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 it was uh, the Everly Brothers song "Kathy's Klein" um, that was meant to be the inspiration for the harmonies on this. I don't know that song particularly well. I listened to it not long before we started recording this. I, okay, there's there's harmonies in it. Sure, yeah, absolutely, there are. Um, whether whether they're specific enough to be that or from something, I don't know. It, it's probably just all in the mix, as it were. But certainly, as far as uh, as the the harmonies are concerned, it is that. Yeah, you're right. It's McCartney that's holding that top note. Um, Lennon's doing the lower voice, and then it's uh, Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison uh, when it finally gets to the please, please me, well, yeah, like I please you. So there's a three-part harmony going on, and that development, that from the two to the three, also gives a little bit of extra spark to the song. It pushes that part of the chorus just that little bit further. Uh, it is very, very well done. It's, I mean, yeah. just from a purely technical point of view, it's extremely competent. I, th I think then I need to go back and 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 listen a bit more to the Everly Brothers because even again, sort of you know, playing that song in my mind now, I'm still hearing two people harmonising on a similar melody rather than than something that is is effectively 
uh, I don't know what they call contrapunctual. I don't know. There's, there's probably some technical term that, that no doubt Ian McDonald would have um, a used and b be chastising me for not knowing. Um, but you know what, Ian, I don't care. Um, you know, but it, it, there's some. He'll be heartbroken. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it, it just feels like they they it's the same words but going in different directions, and that contrast between them is the thing that makes it powerful. I'm still hearing. Um, I'm still hearing, you know, um, similar melody lines in in the Everly Brothers, but I'm quite happy to admit that um, that I should go back and listen to it, you know. But um, that's fine. My ignorance on the Everly Brothers is is a place that I'm 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 happy to exist in. Yeah, I've never never really been a big fan of the Everly Brothers. Like, I, they're they're very much one of those acts that I appreciate more than I like. Like, I, I understand absolutely why people love them. I understand the skill and I understand the songwriting and all the rest of it. Um, but I just never quite managed to get on board with it. That's actually not that dissimilar um, to Roy Orbison either. Um, I adore Roy Orbison's voice. I think his voice is just one of the most beautiful and perfect things I've ever heard. But I'm not that big a fan of his music when all, when all is said and done. I like Only the Lonely and I Drove All Night and Pretty Woman. You know, all the familiar hits, that's that's fine. Uh, but I've never really been a massive fan. I've never, never felt the urge to do a deep dive. But his voice is just such a, such a beautiful thing. It's so perfect. I utterly adore it. And I never got what was meant to be so cool about that look. <laughs> that's a whole separate question yeah <laughs> different times yeah. different times yeah absolutely absolutely that's fair enough but he kept it going and and you know consistency uh there's there's a really good thing um there, there are some things about um please please me that i think are um are really important that you know stuff that that i sort of gleaned from the mark lewison book um where you just go okay right so you know this this is a band who are utterly utterly confident about what they're doing you know that self-belief must have been rife and 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 this is this is what you might find interesting so you know i think we'll go in and and and, you know look for some of the data on this um it was first played according to set list uh in preston on october the 26th 1962 now bear in mind the number of live gigs that they were playing at the time it then wasn't played again until january the 8th for a a BBC recording. They kept it, they kept it back. And this is a point that Mark Lewison makes is that that they were so confident that this was gonna be a big thing for them. What they didn't wanna happen was for anyone to hear it until they were ready to present it to as wide an audience as possible. So you actually then have on January the 8th and January the 13th, two television recordings of Please Please Me. And it sort of goes along with that uh, that story that apparently is true of George Martin when they finish recording it, you know, pressing the intercom in, in the control booth and saying, you know, lads, you've just recorded your first number one hit. Of course, he was wrong. He only got to number two, but that's not the point. Ish. You know, but an incredibly confident thing to say. And, and a, he must have been astonishingly aware of its impact as they were for them just to say, well, actually, what we're not going to do is play this live because up until this point live music was was their playground that was how they got to be the band um that that they they were you know they just practice 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 played you know often you know two or three gigs a night and admittedly at this point they're slowing down from playing in on principally in the merseyside scene 
and the huge you know um yeah possibilities that there were for playing live night after night after night and they're starting to go a little bit further um a field as as brian epstein is is giving them more of a, a professional feel as love me do is starting to to creep up um the charts you know but they had only again this is you know credit to mark lewison for this they they had this gap in their career we we think of them as as like the consummate songwriters that lennon mccartney in this period must have been sitting face to face eyeball to eyeball in you know their respective houses you know strumming along playing songs uh, to each other and working out the chords and and changing the lyrics with you know little pencil behind the ear perhaps you know that that sort of cliche but actually for a couple of years they just basically stopped writing songs altogether and it was only with things like Love Me Do, P.S. I Love You, and the encouragement of, you know, um, music publishers um, that really then showed them the possibilities of being able to um, to put some faith in their own music. They, they'd seem to have lost that. You know, the whole story again about them saying another Lennon and McCartney hit at the top of each, or whatever it was, at the top of each page in the notepad. There must have been, you know, a big gap between them writing, you know, song x and then you know song y that's fascinating you don't think of them as having that creative stumbling block but actually i don't think it was a creative stumbling block i think they were just too busy doing other stuff yeah i mean that's true and i think one of the interesting things about that is also the way that the song changed i mean i'm sure you know probably everyone listening to this is aware but you know george martin also had a profound influence in the way that this song was recorded he got them to increase the tempo um got it away from this well i think he called it dreary was the word he used but this rather dreary blues number picked up the speed uh, picked up the speed of the thing and it became the song that we now think of as as please please me so you know above and beyond that kind of you've recorded your first number one like he's partly responsible for them getting the song to a place where it could be that and that's really significant it's another one of those things where you know it doesn't take an awful lot of change to a song for it to be transformed from something which is ah, you know this is all right to my god this is going to you know blow the socks off everyone and you know particularly because promotionally they were able to get out and, and actually promote this song which they couldn't do for um love me do it meant that it, it it got the again it got an extra push where where the previous single didn't um and it it's just one of those songs where everything came together it was the right song it, it found the right producer it it was written in a way that um allowed it to 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 work how it was supposed to it just it everything just worked on it well the the interesting okay so it found the right producer it found the right producer for the wrong reason and this is this is the thing we sort of think it's kind of kismet that George Martin got involved or. You know, there's that whole story about, you know, George Harrison, uh, you know, give, giving that quip about, you know, I don't like your tie and oh, everybody fell about laughing. They all got on famously. But he was told to produce that session, you know, and it was it was effectively, you know, the boss who he didn't particularly get on with telling him that he needed to record it as a favour to the in-house publishing company uh, at EMI. Um, you know, Ardmore and Beechwood, who saw something in the Beatles in the original tape, in the recordings of, uh, I think it was Love Me Do and PSI Love You. They, they saw something there that they could be a success. 
but also that they could be a financial success, that, that having an artist who could write their own songs and be successful would be a huge benefit to the company. And without little bits of, of fate like that, you know, there's there's all sorts of, um, you know, well, what would have happened? You know, you could do that, that counterfactual uh, thing, you know, that ends up with, in as in that um, that Richard Curtis film with, you know, John Lennon living as a, a reclusive artist somewhere in, I don't know if it was meant to be, you know, Dungeness or, or somewhere up um, in the Northwest. I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention to that film. Um, you know, who knows what would have happened? Someone else had got hold of the band. Would they have made that decision? But, you know, if George Martin had been given a choice saying, well, you could record this band or you could do this. And he goes, well, we'll do that. Um, so it wasn't as though he, he sought them out. They were given to him, which is interesting. But it, it's credit to him then that he did the best job he possibly could. He didn't take that as a as a sort of a little bit of an insult. So, well, I'll do a little polished job, and you know, I'll I'll chuck it out there with the burning cribbins, uh, Bernard Cribbin songs of the world. Actually, he recognised the potential and did something with it, which is really really fascinating. Yeah, and it just I mean, it's hardly a unique observation I realise, but it does just speak to the genius of the man that he was prepared to do that. That uh, even when he was handed something which he didn't necessarily seek out, he was still more than professional enough to actually pay attention and not just pay attention, but then, you know, really pay attention. But I mean, it, it also cuts it also cuts both ways. You know, he would have had to have been somebody that the Beatles had enough respect for um, to listen to what he had to say, like taking this song as a perfect example. Well, George Martin told them to speed it up. He told them to put a bit more energy into it, a bit more life to it. They could have said, no, it's our song. We'll do it the way we want. But, you know, there was there was clearly enough of a mutual respect there, enough of a mutual bond that they were prepared to listen to it. And I doubt very much it was simply because, well, you know, he's the boss man. He's the man in charge. They're not really the sort of people that respond to that kind of um, authoritarianism, I think it would be fair to say, least of all Lenin, who would be far more like to stick two fingers up. But, you know, they obviously had that connection and, and whatever it was, whatever that spark was, it, it, it flowed both ways. It, it wouldn't work if it had just been George Martin um, on one side. It wouldn't have worked if it had just been the Beatles on the other. But but together, yeah, what more could you ask for? I do wonder, though, if, if sometimes they, they um, you know, Lennon gets a slightly exaggerated um, reputation as being the one who's sort of defiant of authority. Um, you know, especially bearing in mind his, his home situation and, you know, his Aunt Mimi uh, basically being, you know, fairly ruthless. And yet, of course, he kept going back and kept going back. I think he quite liked being bossed around, really. I, I think there, there's plenty of validity in that observation, yes. Yeah, yeah. And let's not start get get to the point where we're analysing his second marriage as opposed to his first, um, you know, and, and move on from there. Um, you know, it's it's a funny thing. You know, this is this is clearly a breakthrough song. You know, this is clearly yes, the thing that, that that launches them as a major act. That they were delighted with getting to the number seventeen in the chart with "Love Me Do." And in fact, "Love Me Do" is still in the chart when when this is released as a single. You know, so there's there's none of that that sort of professionalism that then occurred later on, uh, perhaps in the 70s and the 80s more, where you'd wait for one song to have finished its sales life before then releasing another. 
you know, this is launched while the Beatles are still known they are an act. But it's not uncommon for, for acts at this time to have, you know, a couple of songs um, in the charts at, at the one time. Um, you know, particularly the likes of uh, Cliff and, and Frank Ifield, uh, the major crooners of the day. Uh, by the way, do you know the link between um, Frank Ifield and, and the Beatles? I do not. Ah, Frank Ifield and Paul McCartney shared a girlfriend for a while. Ah, I, yeah. I, I think there's a fair chance that Paul McCartney might share a girlfriend with everybody in the 1960s. Well, I mean, there is that, but it, I think it's more a case that he was going out with someone um, who was probably spending a bit more time with, with Frank Ifield. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there's a story about that in a gig in Peterborough that, um, that I'd, I'd need to look up again uh, before um, uh, retelling it. But um, basically, you know, they, the Beatles did support Frank Ifield for a time as well. So, um, you know, if they were both aware of what was going on, that must have been ever so slightly tense. But, um, yeah, but hey, Paul's the nice one. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. But um, one of the things that... Um, we haven't commented on yet, and I have to because it's now it's now my um, self-defined role is that I have to just I have to mention the right honourable Mr. Starr because um, sure. we've 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 done a fair amount of talking about the lyric and we've talked about the instrumentation, um, but really, really top-notch work from Ringo here. Um, it's one of those it's one of those performances I think that tends to get rather underappreciated. But he's doing really great work here. It's not it's not complex. It's not even particularly. Um, how can I say it? It's not necessarily his most signature kind of sound, but it just works perfectly for this song. It's got a really nice underpinning. There's again, of course, great lock between the bass line and, and, and what Ringo's doing. But it's just it's just a lovely little performance. Very almost understated. If, if anything of Please Please Me can be understated, it's almost understated. But it just it's just there, and I just I would feel remiss if I didn't mention it. Um, well, I, I'm just going to fall back on on the cliche about umpires in crickets and uh, in cricket and referees in football and rugby. Um, I, I didn't notice, and and therefore that suggests he's doing a good job. Fair enough. Can't argue with that. I, I'll leave the um, the drumming uh, to your particular field of expertise. Such, such as it is. Such as it is. Uh, yeah, I just I don't know. I just I just like it. It's not. It's just. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's not revelatory. It's not. It's not a signature move or anything. But it just it just works for the song, and and for all the rest of it. I mean, it's. Um, we talked about George Harrison much. He's certainly on this. Um, he's got his nice little guitar line. Okay, that's nice. I don't really have much else to add there. But but then maybe that's the indication that this is the uh, one of the. F- viewpoints on on the album to this point where they feel like a group you know um a collective as opposed to um you know people you know a bunch of individuals doing their thing around a song that pre-exists they actually feel like um you know a proper group that, that we would have listened to when we were we were growing up we go oh okay that's a band right okay um, you know the the sum is much greater than the um, than the parts, and, oh, and, yeah, yeah. and that's 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 just it's just a wonderful thing. You know, bear in mind some of the songs that we we've, we've had to discuss so far. This is just an absolute breath of fresh air. You know, again, not saying it's going to make the um, um, you know the top fifty songs of the of the twentieth century. Um, you know, but it's it's just so much. Th- um, ahead of of the other things that they were doing. Yes, this was apparently listed as 
number uh, 184 of the 500 greatest songs of all time, according to uh, Rolling Stone, which is not necessarily something that we need to put a lot of a lot of faith in. But if we want to know where it ended up, that's where it ended up. So out out of interest, when was that particular poll put together? Uh, that is a very good question. I suspect some time ago. Dum dum dum. I don't know. 2010. There we are. Okay. Okay, that's fair enough. I I wonder how. I mean, it must be very, very um, difficult to to judge that, you know. I and I do wonder how people do it. Whether they, it's a little bit like one of those I love nineteen eighty three type uh, type things, um, where people are judging it more on how they thought they felt at the time, rather than. In fact, I don't know how do you 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 decide upon something's um, artistic merit when they are quite so clearly different you know it's a little bit like um comparing i don't know um it to say come on eileen i mean it's probably the kind of things that you could compare it to you've got come on eileen the specials ghost town um and um west end girls by the pet shop boys you know thing okay right discuss which is the better song where do you start yeah exactly but I mean, those lists mostly just exist to annoy people into having a conversation. I think I don't. I'm not sure that they have any particular merit beyond that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of. But they're they're good clickbait, aren't they? Yeah, that's exactly what they are. They're they're good for sort of you know basically looking at it and going, yeah, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, or indeed for for someone validating their own um, particular opinion um, of, of of a song. So I mean, it would be interesting then to. Um, just to sort of work out where it sits in comparison to one or two of the other Beatles singles around this time. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the next time we, we've got a, a song, a single, particularly a single that, that will really energise is going to be when we get to She Loves You. And, yes. and then it's going to be you know, interesting, you know, after a relatively um, brief period to say, OK, right, so please, please me, here are the good things that, that it does. Then we get on to She Loves You. These are the good bits that it takes from Please Please Me and these are the new bits that it that it adds on. I think you can do that as a discussion. Um, you know, I think you can have a conversation about, you know, were the Beatles better than the Kinks? Uh-huh. Um, you know, but it, it just, so much has changed in music. Um, mind you, that said, when it gets to those, um, those film lists, you know, you still regularly get the same half a dozen films uh, cropping up as being of the best ever, and then all those people that are just so utterly wrong about Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And lists like this, apparently there are. F uh, Please please me is the fifteenth Beatles song on that uh, five hundred greatest songs of all time. I don't know what the other fourteen are. I suppose we'll probably come across them at some point. Um, okay. uh, but I don't feel any great urge to look them up at this point in in time but um you know it's you know please please me is uh if i can briefly drag it back to the subject i had um it's all right yeah it's fine it's good it is a good song i don't know i i don't know why i was i was when we were talking um just before we started recording um i was kind of down on it and now we've kind of talked about it i think i've kind of talked myself into liking it a bit more uh, which is kind of nice um that's fine yeah I, I, it's it's fine yeah yeah and and I think you you've just got to take it as being a sign of of confidence, a sign of a band who are who are going places, um, who are starting to understand that there is a mold, a mold that can be broken, um, and that they can do things um, the way they want to do it. 
and and that's an utterly utterly fascinating thing um you know and and we we sort of started by by talking about the fact that it was the the title track for for the album and is it an appropriate title track for the album well yeah it's it's just going back to that old thing is that even that was a brand new idea the idea that that you know you put a bunch of songs together that are uh, sort of like a, a unified group that will be an expression of a time and a place in a band's history and then you've got to give it a name in order to to be able to market it you know that whole new ideas about absolutely everything so i think the fact that it was chosen is that indication of of not just their confidence but also that this is what we want to be remembered by because don't forget don't we then get on to um um album titles that are a little bit um a little bit daft actually you know with with the beatles and beatles for sale you know you think right okay those feel like um names that have uh, been brought up by by marketing committees well let's make sure we include the the words the beatles uh in the title but here it's a case of this is what we think is our strongest song. We're going for it. Absolutely. And one of the things that we're going to do is once we actually finish discussing uh, the album uh, song by song, we're going to do an episode which is just about the album. So we'll have more thoughts and more uh, things to get stuck into when we, when we come to discuss Please Please Me as a whole rather than just as a series of individual tracks. So something for our listeners to look forward to there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th- I think we've... we've, we've it, Hopefully it's come across a, um, a little bit more upbeat than, than some of the other songs. And, and just that reminder that this is a really great group in their, you know, infant years, as it were. They've been around as a band for a long time. As recording artists, this is this is a whole new thing for them. It's such little experience in the studio. You know, the Decca tapes um, and then uh, Love Me Do and um, P.S. I Love You. But this is the big one. And, and this is the one that's going um, to go funny voice mode. Set them on their path to glory. Absolutely. And what a path we will spend our time walking down. But I think in the meantime, we can probably wrap it up there for the time being. You can contact us by email. We are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Please like, rate and review us on whatever podcatcher you're using so that more people can find the show. Next episode, we are going to be, well, actually not exactly following perfectly linear uh, chronology because we've already talked about the next two songs. We've already discussed uh, Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. So that means we are going to be skipping forward to Baby It's You. And we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.